You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. We're going to read our second reading, which will form the basis of our sermon text. And it's going to come from Colossians chapter 3, four short verses. So please stand with me as we read together. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. Paul is here writing to the church in Colossae, and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. God, as we come to consider your word this morning, even though these verses are short and appear to be simple, we know we fall so far short of its instruction. I pray, God, that you may give us hearts that would be open to your word, hearts that are not conformed to our culture, that do not take up its cues from society around us, but take up its cues from your word. So God, I pray that you'll be with us this morning as we come to hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was growing up as a child, one of my favorite sitcoms is Full House. And for those of you who are too young to remember what Full House is, or perhaps too old to remember what that is, it's a a sitcom about a father who has three young daughters. And sadly, his wife died. And he had the wisdom to enlist the help of his brother-in-law and best friend in raising them up. And as most family sitcoms, the formula is pretty straightforward. Every episode, it starts with a conflict of some kind. And as the episode progresses, the conflict escalates more and more. And then finally, there are interjections uh, from family members. And at the end of that 30 minutes, you can be assured that there will be resolution, there'll be reconciliation, there'll be warm hugs all around. And the sitcom is so endearing because I think it sets up a hope for this picture-perfect family that we all long for inside. And it's not a coincidence that all of us long for a picture-perfect family. It's because God has put it in us for that kind of desire and longing. But sadly, most, if not all of us, do not live in that kind of reality. Many of us have broken relationships. Many of us have disappointments with our family, whether that's because of our own doing or because of circumstances outside of our control. But nonetheless, God has put in place the family and he has provided very specific instructions for us 
so that we can live out the full blessedness that comes with the family. And so this morning, we're going to consider God's word and specifically how to live transformed lives in the context of a family. Now, for those who are new or who have recently just joined us again, we're going through the book of Colossians. We've gone through a number of chapters now, and this morning we're in chapter 3. And specifically, we've been looking at what it means to live transformed lives. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at it in terms of what to put off as well as what to put on. And this morning, we're going to move into a section where, having addressed the generalized population, Paul now addresses specific groups of people. This morning, we're going to hear him talk to wives, husbands, children, and fathers. And he's going to tell them specific things that are relevant to their group. But I want to structure my sermon in a couple of ways. Firstly, I want to talk about some general observations so that we don't miss the big picture of what it means to live transformed lives in the family. And then secondly, I want to then dive into the specific people groups that Paul talks about. And so, given these four small verses, let me just want to read it again so that it's really clear in our minds as we set out the overall context. Verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, the first general observation I want to make here is that the family unit is made out of husband, wife, and any children that God blesses them with. And this may seem like a very obvious observation. But I want to point out it's not a coincidence that Paul addresses this particular people group and not any other people group. Paul goes straight back into creation. That passage that we just read in Genesis chapter 2 where God creates Adam and Eve to be image bearers, that's really important. That's what Paul is trying to get back to here. And particularly, we read in verse 24 of Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What the Bible is saying here is that the husband and wife are to form this completely new unit and fulfill the mandate to go and populate. They are going to form a new unit that takes decision-making, whether that relates to economy and finances, or where the children grow up, or emotional support. They are to form that new unit. Now, in our culture today, society tells us families come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. The Mormon church will tell us that you can have one man with multiple wives. The LGBT community will tell us you can have two husbands, two wives, two fathers, two mothers. Commonly, we find de facto couples and families living together for a time, and when it's no longer convenient, they just leave, and they have no commitment to each other. But the Bible tells us it's one man, one woman, leaving and cleaving. And God designed it so, so that each of them will have their own respective roles and responsibilities. And so let me push the point even further. The Bible doesn't tell us and doesn't extend this family group even to grandparents or aunts and aunties and, uh, and, and uncles. 
I'm not saying that they should not be part of the broader tribe, but when it comes to the individual unit of decision-making and accountability, it's between the husband and wife and their decision for their children. So that's really important, which leads me to my second observation here. It's important because the family is the foundation to God's salvation plan. The family is important because it's the foundation to God's salvation plan. And so we see that not only in how God has created the family, one man, one woman, but we also see it in how God has given his decrees over the course of history. God does not give his decrees through the church. God does not give his decrees through the synagogue or through schools. There are many, many examples I could give you, but the most famous one is, of course, in Deuteronomy 6. We should be familiar with this, where God tells the, the people of Israel, and, and I'll read out here from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, and he's gathering the people here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, here's a critical point. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The command goes to parents to convey that to their children. It's not about going to church and having messages and principles conveyed. It's done through the family unit. And when we have strong, God-centered families, then we will have strong churches, and then we will have strong societies. Our church can only be as strong as the individual family units that are represented here. And that's why Paul gives instructions to families. And so, as an extension of that, if we want to have a strong society, let's make sure we start with the family. And so my third general observation is this. Every person has a different role, but it serves one purpose. Every person has a different role, but it serves one purpose. You see, Paul gives different instructions to the different people groups. Wives, he says, submit. Husbands, love. Children, obey. Fathers, do not provoke. They all, they all get different instructions. But the one purpose unites all of them together, and that is that they are to live transformed lives that glorify Christ. If you look at verse 18, what immediately precedes verse 18 is, of course, verse 17 that we saw last week. And verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Do you see this? The Lord Jesus is center of all of this. Similarly, we can see in verse uh, 18, where the instruction is given to the wife, Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. Similarly, in verse 20, children obey, for this pleases the Lord. In other words, this is not about you or me. It's not about children. It's not about husbands, not about wives. It's about Christ and glorifying Him and magnifying His name through how we live. It's not about traditional family values. It's not about a good upbringing. It's about living transformed lives that will honor Him and glorify Him. And that's why we have the specific instructions that we have. Now, as we transition into the more specific groups, 
Uh, I just want to note here that the four verses really pack a punch. And I could spend the next four hours diving into each of these. But we'll have to do a very quick flyover today. Now you might think, great, we can probably check out until it's my turn. Since I'm not a wife, I don't have to listen. I'll only listen to the part about husbands. Or perhaps I'm a child. I should not listen to anything to do with a father. Well, let me tell you, all of God's word is important. Children, one day you'll want to be a husband or a wife. You need to hear this. You're thinking about the future partner. You want to hear what is it that makes a godly husband and wife. And one day you'll be parents. Similarly, single people, young people, you want to be thinking about this. Don't wait until you're actually in that role to consider what that role entails. Okay, so let's move to our specific wife group. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And the first thing I want to say is, this is an actually a very staggering statement by Paul. We may gloss over it because we don't live in those times now. But it's staggering because of the order and positioning of how Paul gives his instruction. In our modern world, we say, ladies and gentlemen, we've had centuries of uh, the situation where women are elevated to equal positions, but not in those days. In those days, women were chattel. They were a thing, a possession. They had no identity, no legal standing. And it was very, very countercultural for someone like Paul to put and address women first or wives first by saying, wives. Normally, you would expect wives not to be mentioned at all in, 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 in any letter. And so, similarly, he also puts children before fathers. And again, we'll see that as we get into the children group. But the point is this. He's putting the weaker vessel in the position of equal place and honor as amongst other people. Now, in our modern context, we have a problem with this word submit, don't we? We don't like it. It seems to denote some kind of power arrangement. It's a negative word. But just as I've explained, the positioning tells us actually Paul did not mean it to be derogatory. Paul meant it to be elevated. And not only is it the positioning of who came first, the word that he uses to say submit is very, very instructive. Now, a year ago, Brother Joe preached on Ephesians chapter 5, so I won't go over the word study again, but the word here that's used for submit is this word, hippotasso, and it's a military word. It's a military word to convey arranging under the command of a leader. And the implication is this. You're deliberately doing it yourself, wives. Submission is voluntary. It's about you giving it's about you cooperating and being willing to carry out the orders of someone else. Everyone is equal in the military, but they have different roles. And so, submission, wives, is to be given, not taken from you. That's incredible in this, in this context that Paul is in. It's the exercise of a voluntary choice to follow a leader, even if you don't, uh, even if you don't agree with them. It doesn't mean that you're inferior or that you're weaker or you're less capable. Galatians 3.28 is a parallel passage and, and Paul tells us there is neither male or female. We are all one in Christ. And that means you have equal worth, wives, even though our modern context tells us we don't like this word submit. 
Now, there are a couple of qualifications to this word submit. Firstly, let me make it very, very clear. It is not a gender issue. It is not about a man ruling over a woman. It is not about women coming under men. Some, unfortunately, have twisted this and built a theology saying that men should rule over women in general. This instruction occurs in the context of a wife's relationship with their husband. Outside of marriage, it stops there. It goes no further. Another person's wife does not need to submit to me. And equally, when I'm in the workplace, women don't need to submit to me. And so, let's make sure that we get this really, really clear before we develop that theology too much. It occurs in the context of a husband and wife's relationship with each other. The second qualification is this, that we must read the Bible as a whole and in context. Paul says here in verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, submission here needs to be fitting in the Lord because we're trying to obey Christ. And therefore, wives are not required to go along with anything that is sinful. Acts chapter 5 tells us that we ought to obey God rather than men. And so if your husband is leading you in a way that tells you to lie, to cheat on your taxes, to walk away from the faith, to stop meeting with the people of God, all of these things have affirmative counter-instructions in the Bible, don't they? And we need to obey all of it, not just some of it. But let's ask the question, why should wives submit? What's the rationale? God gives us two strong reasons here. Firstly, it reflects the model of submission that is between Jesus and His Father. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here, if you have your Bibles with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul tells us here, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see here this, this idea of someone being the head or leader over another, this idea of voluntary submission is not just limited to husbands and wives. Jesus himself, Jesus himself must submit to his head which is God the Father. The Son voluntarily submits to the Father even though He is equally God and on an equal footing with God the Father. And similarly, wives are to model after Jesus to submit to their husbands. Again, it's not about value or worth or power dynamics. It's about the differences in roles. And so when a wife submits to their husband, they bring glory to Christ because they point to the complementarianism that occurs within this Godhead here. Now, the second reason comes from 1 Peter 3. Let me read it out here. 1 Peter 3 and verse 3. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectable and pure conduct. Peter recognizes that husbands are not perfect. And indeed, in that context, some of those husbands were unbelievers, but he tells wives to submit anyway because submission 
when it's freely giving, it's, it's so empowering, it's countercultural, it's radical, and it has this incredible gospel impact. The good news of the gospel is presented by the wife without one single word spoken. Your actions, wives, will speak much louder and, and will speak in volumes and will point to Christ more than your words ever will and can. And so let's consider then, what does godly submission look like? Now, in every ma- marriage, you should absolutely have long conversations over decisions. You should talk through things. You should share perspectives and ideas. You should share preferences. You should even have heated debates about the pros and cons of something. And by and large, you should arrive at joint decisions. But in the final analysis, if a decision needs to be made, and again, provided it's not sinful, then submit to your husbands, even if you disagree with their logic. Now, God, again, knows that your husbands are imperfect. They may even be foolish and wrong. Just think of Abigail and Nabal. But God gave, through his inspiration of the word, the instruction anyway. And again, I want to make sure we understand this. This doesn't mean that husbands get a free pass. We just read in the book of 1 Corinthians that the head of every husband is Christ. He's going to answer to Christ. And he's going to account for how he has led and loved his wife. But nonetheless, the instruction is there because we play different roles. That's how God has designed it. And again, just to reinforce, it's not about power. It's about glorifying Christ and obedience to Christ. And so wives, let me ask you, are you submitting so long as the, the leading of your husband is not sinful? Do you realize this is a faith issue, an obedience issue? not a competency issue. And most of all, do you submit out of joy as unto the Lord? Now, husbands, it's your turn. Don't think you get a free pass. Now, in a normal setting, if you get a letter that says, wives, submit to your husbands, you would expect the instruction to be the other side of the coin. Husbands, rule over your wives. Or husbands, lead your wives. Or husbands... Demand compliance. And again, Paul gives a very, very radical instruction here. He says, husbands, love your wives. In that society, in that cultural context, husbands have absolute authority, absolute rights, absolute decision-making power. Women, again, were treated as property. But he gives this radical instruction, husbands, love your wives. And so, let's see here this twofold definition. How that they're meant to love your wife, uh, their wives and they are not meant to be harsh with them. Verse 19. Now this love that is described here, uh, you heard from Brother Joe last week, there are six to eight types of love in the Bible and love here that's described is agape love. It is the sacrificial giving love towards another. It's the love that describes God putting in place a salvation plan even before the foundation of the world. It's the love that describes Jesus stepping down from his throne and taking on human flesh to die for unworthy sinners. It's that kind of love. And it's a love that's not dependent on the response. It's not the love that is given because someone is nice or lovely or cooperative or gentle. That love is given regardless of the respect or response that you get from your wives. Now, husbands, before you boldly say, 
Yeah, I love my wives. I buy her diamond earrings. I give her massages, take her out on dates. Let's look at the standard by which this love is to be held to. Now, in a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and turn with me here, if you can, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's listen to Paul describe that standard. Paul says, Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, in the same way, husbands, love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The standard by which husbands are to love is Christ and how he loved the church. Christ stood down from the throne, took on flesh, humbled himself to death, and took on our filthiness and sin at the cross. Now, a lot of people will focus on this self-sacrificial bit, right? They will have grand ideas. Yes, I'm willing to take a bullet for my wife. If a car is barreling down the highway, I'm willing to shove her out of the way and get hit myself and take on that suffering. Well, friends, that's just one point of it, but I think it really misses the point of agape love here. Have a look at verse 26. Why did Christ give himself up to, uh, for the church? It is that he might sanctify her. That's the purpose of agape love. That he might sanctify her, that she might be holy and without blemish. In that same way, love your wives. Do you see that? The whole point is that Christ died to sanctify the church. So husbands, the type of questions you should be asking yourself is not, do I take the trash out? How can I make my, life, uh, my wife's life easier? Do I speak her language, love language? All those are really good and important things. I'm sure wives will appreciate that. But the types of questions you should be asking yourself is this, am I nourishing her spiritually? Do I read the Bible with her and pray with her? and study the word with her? In my decision-making, am I making decisions that's not about comfort or living the good life, but about helping her become more holy? Those are the questions we need to be asking as husbands. Now, the second part of this instruction says, do not be harsh with our wives. And some of them, uh, some of the translations say, do not be bitter towards or against your wife. And, and I think this is a starting point. We're not to be angry in our attitude or in our words, but it doesn't just end there. I think this phrase tells us that we should not engage in any conduct that will make our wives bitter in spirit. Any action that will make her discouraged and stop following your lead and actually stop wanting to submit to you, that's what the Bible is talking about here. Wives need to submit, but husbands, you need to bring your A-game. You need to love her and nourish her and not turn her against you through your conduct. And so what are some practical examples of how husbands can make wives bitter? We've obviously talked about being harsh and angry and blunt and stubborn. 
Let's go through a couple more. What about playing the submission card? Hey, sweetheart, did you see verse 18 says, you are meant to submit to me? Wives love that, don't they? Don't play the submission card because submission is to be given by wives, not taken by husbands. The Bible never says, husbands, go and demand submission. Go out and take it from them. You focus, husbands, you focus on your instruction and wives will focus on theirs. How else can we make our wives bitter? What about being passive and not leading and not making decisions? We may bring home the paycheck, paycheck, but we don't want to involve ourselves in the running of the home. Husbands, I think that male passivity is one of the biggest causes of marriage breakdowns. It results not just in marital breakdown, but even if couples stay together, it results in absenteeism, it results in fatherlessness, perhaps not literally, but children growing up without the love and attention of their fathers. So let me implore you, husbands, don't be bystanders. Don't be bystanders in your relationship in the home. What about not supporting the teaching and discipline of your children, undermining the authority of your wife, playing the good cop, bad cop game? Kids come to their wives and the mother says no, but husbands will soften, perhaps because they're not there all the time, and give in. That will embitter your wives, I'm sure. What about pride? Not listening to your wives? Always assuming that you know the way or that you're right? What about not owning your mistakes and your sins? Husbands, your wives were given to sanctify you too. They see you very clearly and where you are spiritually, don't they? So husbands, let's get real here. Do you love in the same way as Christ loves the church? Not in the bravado and blaze of glory, but in the day-to-day rhythms to sanctify her, to love her in that way. Let me ask you, how can you serve your wife better? How can you make her spiritual life more important to you than it has ever been? Can you cook and look after the kids on Sunday nights so that she can attend ladies' Bible study? Can you make it such that Sunday mornings, dad makes breakfast so that she can be in a better frame of mind to go to church and to meet with the people of God? Husbands, do you discern your wife's spiritual gifts? Do you encourage her to use them for God and to serve his church and his community? Or is she just too busy juggling, cooking, cleaning, childcare, work? Husbands, if we love like Christ loved the church, we will have no issues with submission. Now, let's move on very quickly to children. And again, we've pointed out how radical it is that Paul would seek to address children at all because children were, again, non-entities in that context. Even in modern times, we have this phrase, right? Children should be seen but not heard. Paul does it differently. He loves them just like Jesus loved children. And it's really instructive as well that children, he addresses children because that meant that children were there listening when this letter was being read to the church. And so, kids, children, get this straight. Church is not for grown-ups. Church is not for grown-ups. It's for you. Even in the Old Testament, children 
was specifically uh, addressed by God. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 12, for example, let me read it out here and you can check it out later when you get home. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. Now this is where Moses is about to get together and, and share God's instruction. And he says, assemble the people, assemble the men, women, and little ones, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of his law, and that their children, who have not known it yet, may hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God. And we see this pattern occur not just through Deuteronomy, when Joshua was about to lead the Israels time and time again. I can give many, many examples of how children are involved in the rhythms of worshipping God together in the church community. And that's why this church would deliberately make a plan, the elders make a plan, that while we will have a nursery for those kids who are under four, we don't have separate services for children for this reason. We have different Sunday school classes before this main service. We have youth group during the middle of the week. But we want everyone to worship together. We want to evangelize and disciple our kids and expose them to God's word. Not just in stories and song, but in actual Bible knowledge here. And if you're new with us here and you have children or perhaps you're a grandparent and you have grandchildren, please don't be embarrassed if your children make a fuss or talk during the service. It's totally understandable and we don't expect them to be perfect. We love you. We love your children. And we want to support you in your desire to expose them to the Word of God. Now for children on the other extreme of the age spectrum, teenagers, young adults, let me point out here, this instruction is not about age groups. This instruction, this, this word to children, it's a relational word. It's not about demographics. Do you, do you get to 18 and you're free? So long as you're living under the home and care of your parents, then this verse replies to you because relationally, you're still under their care. And so it doesn't matter whether you're 30 or 35. If you're still at home, if you're still under your parents' care, then it applies to you. Now, children, the command is to obey in everything. It's really simple. And again, as I said earlier to that passage on wives, we must interpret scripture by scripture. And so if your parents tell you to sin, to steal, to lie, if there's abuse in that relationship, I think you're not bound to follow those instructions. You're not bound to obey in that specific instruction. But beyond sin, I think there's very little qualification. Paul says, in everything. So children, it's not up to you to decide whether your parents are right or wrong. It's not up to you to decide whether your parents have made a mistake. They need to answer to God. Your obedience is not just to your parents. It is obedience to Christ, as we've seen earlier on. And in everything doesn't mean just every subject matter. It means thoroughly, in totality. It means obeying not just in your words and your actions, but in your heart and in your attitude. And so children, this is not obeying if you push back and say, why? Why do I have to do this? It's not obeying if you're dragging your feet. It's not obeying if you roll your eyes and mutter talk uh, or you talk back under your breath. Now, remember that episode when the disciples were out in that boat um, late one night and Jesus fell asleep? 
and the winds and the storms came in and got really rough and there was chaos all around. And these seasoned, seasoned fishermen were so scared of their lives. And they run to Jesus and wake him up and say, why are you still sleeping? Don't you see what's going on? And Jesus turns around and with three words, he tells them, win, see, stop. And the wind and the sea obeyed and there was complete calmness, complete silence, complete stillness. All of creation obeyed. And it's that very same word that's being used here. Children obey completely, immediately, exactly. Now, children, I know obedience is hard. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, I was also a child. But God is good, and he gives you three very good reasons why you should obey. Firstly, verse 20 tells us, Obey because it pleases the Lord. It makes Jesus happy. So do you love Jesus? Have you committed your lives to follow him? If you do, don't you want to obey him, to make him happy, to please him? The second comes from Ephesians 6 verse 6. It's, it's a parallel passage to this. Ephesians 6 verse 6. Let me read it out here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Now, do you see, let's focus here. It is right. It's God's design. It's God's created order. He is the watchmaker, and he dictates how the watch works. He made this world. He made you, and he knows what is the best way for you, and he tells you it is right. That's how it's meant to work. You obey. That's your role. That's your responsibility. And thirdly, the sweetest reason of all, I think, it's this first commandment with a promise. God gave a list of commandments, and they're very clear. But they were without any promise, although, of course, blessing comes from obedience. But with this particular commandment, he says it's a commandment with promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, do you want blessing upon your life? When you obey your parents, you're protected from harm and danger. You have a great relationship with them. You have peace and harmony and joy in your life. You grow up in stable relationships. All of these things are blessings. Now, children, teenagers, people living under your parents' care, do you obey? Do you obey from the heart? And young kids, listen up. Remember I said you're not too young Church is not just for adults. You're not too young to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. Think about Samuel. He followed Jesus when he was very young. Think about Joseph. Think about David, the shepherd boy. All of them were devoted to following God from a very young age, and you can too. If you see that you are full of sin, if you understand that only Jesus can save you, if you believe that he died and rose again for you, then you can follow him and you can turn your life over and commit it to him. Now, lastly, let's talk to fathers. Fathers, verse 21 says, 
Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And, and in our version, in most versions, this word is often translated fathers in the paternal sense. Right? It's addressing specific gender groups. But let me just say, some commentators argue that it should also extend to mothers. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, the same word is used to describe parents, to describe Moses' parents when they hid him for a period of three months. There it says Moses' parents hid him. And regardless of, of the, the role here, whether it's fathers or mothers, I think there's a lot of wisdom for us to be learned here. Also for anyone who's a caretaker of children, because I know we don't live in perfect, rosy families where the father is always home. Some of us are in single mother situations where the mother is a primary caretaker. So the instruction here is do not provoke. And the word here, provoke, uh, has a sense of stirring up. And many folks will think, well, this is just temporarily frustration. Don't stir them up and make them angry in a temporary short-term way. But I think it's, it's more than that. It's about exasperating your children, forcing them to feel like they have no choice but to act out in a certain way. And that's not just the immediate term, it's also the long-term, the long-term resentment that's built up over time. And Paul says, fathers, don't do that. The consequences are really severe. Look at verse 21. It makes them lose heart. It literally means they can be broken in spirit. And once that spirit is broken, there is no turning back. And so let's think about what are some of the examples that father, fathers can provoke their children. Again, most people think it's about having too many rules or not knowing when to relax or being angry or harsh in their words. And I think those are all good starting points, but I think it's much more than that. What about playing favorites amongst your kids? Being softer towards one having higher expectations on other, another. Just think back at Jacob and his son Joseph and how Jacob plays favorites with Joseph and also Benjamin. Imagine if you're one of the 12 brothers there living in this situation of favorites. And of course, we all know it caused so much brotherly conflict that they decided to throw him in the pit and to sell him on. And he became a slave for so many years before... God miraculously turned that situation around. Playing favorites can embitter, can provoke your children. What about being an absent father? Being physically present, but your mind is constantly on the news or on, the, on politics or on work or on sports. Children need more than income. They need more than things and experiences and comfort. They need nurture and mentoring and spiritual growth. Anything short of that is neglect. Eli provoked his children in this way, didn't he? He was so focused on his ministry, so focused on the temple, so focused on being a judge to the people. All of these are incredibly good things. But he neglected his boys and they just did whatever they want. And eventually they stained God's name and brought condemnation upon themselves. Similarly, what about not disciplining and correcting them? A lot of people think having too many rules. The other extreme is equally correct. Not disciplining and correcting your children. And sadly, even in this church context, we tend to use 
modern psychological methods and, and trust that all things will work out as their children leave, they will somehow obey authority. But our own experience and history tells us it's wrong. Think about David. A man after God's own heart, but he failed miserably in this way, didn't he? He had a son who did an awful, awful thing to his half-sister. So awful, I won't mention it here. He had another son who kills his brother. In both situations, he did nothing about it. He sat back. He didn't discipline. Absalom then kills his brother, nothing. Absalom plots to usurp the throne, nothing. Absalom builds an army and a, a crowd of people against him, nothing. Until God eventually steps in to discipline and, and the consequence is that he tears this kingdom away from David. Now, if our obligation is not to provoke our children, then fathers, what is it? Is it just being nice? Is it letting our children have their own way? No, in Ephesians 6, as we just read, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, he's not giving two separate commandments here. He's giving one commandment. They're describing two sides of the same coin. Don't provoke your children to anger, but go and do this. Go and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we're not saying just leave a void, right? Stop doing this. There's a void here. There's a vacuum. Fill it. Fill it with discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, discipline here, again, is not about spanking and timeouts and so forth. Discipline here, as it's used in the Bible, is the it's not about corrective error, okay? It's about a holistic training and education and cultivation program. Okay, so some of our young people here are going for their three-year college degree in Texas A&M. There's a syllabus there. There's a program there. So that at the graduation, they know that they've learned something. And similarly, we need to do the same. We need to have this program in mind so that at the end of this, when our children grow up and leave our homes, they have learned a specific body of doctrine, of instruction, of values, of life, so that they can go out and form their own new families. And so, this can't be an accidental task. Fathers, we can't just sit back and wing in a prayer and somehow wish that it happens. We spend so much time thinking about college, visiting colleges, looking at syllabus, looking at reviews. We spend so much time saving for college education funds and planning ahead and what kind of jobs they, they're doing. But are we spending enough time thinking about their training in the Lord? I implore you, fathers, don't prioritize work or sports or leisure or even church over spiritual instruction of your children. And similarly, don't fill your children's lives up with so much that they don't have time for intentional conversations around who they are, how they relate to God, the bigger things in life. Additional classes and skills and sports is good, but not as important as teaching God's ways to our children. Instead, fathers, we need to set out the rhythms and patterns of worshipping God and getting to know Him. This starts with family worship, reading the Word of God together. It starts with prayer. It starts with singing. 
it extends to attending church and serving the church community together. Fathers, what you do, not what you say, will have the greatest impact on your children. Children are fantastic at picking up cues. If you miss church because of work or because a game is on, they're going to pick it up and they're going to know, I see the priority here. I see what the priority ranking is, what's important to you. And if you talk about the importance of prayer and about Bible reading, but you never do it yourself, similarly too, they will pick up on the cues that it's optional. It's a good talk. So fathers, if you're not doing anything, let me encourage you here. Every week, Ben or Joel or myself send out a weekly email reminding what's ahead in our service next week. In that email contains the sermon um, text, it contains the songs we're going to sing, it contains a number of reflection questions. It's designed to make it easy for you to prepare for Sunday worship and also for family worship. If you're not doing anything with your family right now, why don't you start with this email? Perhaps you can pick one of the songs each night to sing together. Perhaps on Saturday mornings you can sit the family down and read the passage together and have those discussion questions in the dialogue. Fathers, when your children leave home, are they going to remember empty words and rules and just discard them? Or will they continue the rhythms and patterns that you've built into their lives? Fathers, put simply, what will your legacy be? Now, we've heard a lot about what it's like to live transformed lives in the family context this morning. Families only work best if we follow God's design and instruction for us. And this morning, my exhortation is, don't look at the next person. Don't look at your wife or your husband or your child and ask, hey, did you listen to that sermon this morning? We need to ask ourselves, are we doing our own role, our own part? And perhaps this morning, you are convicted that you've failed. It's a high standard. And uh, I must confess, as I was preparing this sermon, it's very convicting, God's standard and instruction. And perhaps we need to repent. Let me remind you, if you repent, there is much grace and mercy at the cross. And not only grace and mercy, there is great power to transform. And Jesus can help us repent. So turn to him for repentance. Now, I'm also conscious that that this sermon can bring up a lot of hurt and pain because life, events outside our control, sin, poor choices, that has left some of us without a husband, without a wife. That has meant some of us are not able to have children. Some of us grew up without fathers or mothers. And we live in the reality of broken relationships despite trying and following God's commands. And God knows you've tried. And life is not like an episode of Full House where every day ends with warm hugs and fuzzy feelings and happy endings. If this is you, let me encourage you, Jesus knows your pain. He knows your hurt. He can heal you. And He can heal your brokenness. You don't have to wait for him to return. He has already done this incredible work of redemption. It's already starting. 
How? He has given you a new family, the family of God. It's incredible. Remember, Jesus turns around and says to John on the cross, Behold your mother. And he turns to Mary and says, Behold your son. And he says the same thing here. Behold your brothers and sisters. It's not a fuzzy concept to make us feel better. It's real. Look around you. We come from all backgrounds and nations united under the family of Christ. So turn. Turn to your brothers and sisters at this local church. Reach out to them. Open up. Share your pain and your struggles. Have meals together. Visit each other. Go away on trips together. Because ultimately, this, this is the family that Christ has redeemed for himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the specific instructions for us to follow that we may live transformed lives. Thank you that you have not left it all void for us to figure it out ourselves. God, the standard that you have set is high. And I know many of us will need to repent this morning and we will need to do better through your power, through your grace, through your mercy. God, I pray that you'll keep on sanctifying us. We need your help. Help us to battle with fleshly desires and help us to have transformed lives. And Father, for anyone that's hurting this morning, may your grace and love envelop them, remind them that you love them and they are part of your family. And I pray that for this local church, you will help us to grow stronger together in each other's lives. We thank you and pray this to the glory of your son's name. Amen.